Good morning. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It sounds a lot worse than it is. I actually feel pretty good. There's just something going on in here. I'm not quite sure what, but uh, by God's grace, I think we'll make it through this morning. I did think it was wise to let Brian have a go at the adult Sunday school in order to preserve my voice. And I trust the Lord will sustain it this morning as we continue to worship together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, follow along as I begin reading in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You've heard the expression, uh, fight or flight, right? It's our response mechanism. Uh, whenever we face danger, uh, was it last week or the week before, perhaps you heard of this, a young man in Colorado out jogging or hiking or something, wasn't he? And he all of a sudden noticed that a mountain lion was stalking him and he tried flight, as I think any of us would have in similar circumstances. The lion tracked him down and pounced on him. He had no alternative but to do what? Fight. And he was actually able to fight off this mountain lion. I think he actually ended up killing it with his bare hands or something like that. Kudos to him. Fight or flight. It's our response mechanism whenever we face danger. As Christians, we face plenty of dangers. And at times, we are commanded to fight. We're commanded to fight the good fight of faith. But there are other occasions, according to God's word, when we face dangers, uh, the only appropriate response isn't to fight. It is to flee. And so, 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee from youthful passions. Don't fight them. Flee from them. 1 Timothy 6, 11, flee from the love of money. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. 
And in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, flee from idolatry. And so Paul's point is simply this. Idolatry is a danger. And in response to this danger, we are to flee. When we flee, we do not walk. We do not stroll. We do not meander. We run for our lives. That's Paul's admonition. That is his exhortation to us. Again, chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, what's the context? You've all got a worship guide, right? If you open up that worship guide, you'll see sermon notes, fleeing idolatry, the title for this sermon. And under that, you will see five statements that summarize for you 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 11, verse 1. These three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, set the context for this exhortation. And so what is going on? Back to chapter 8. Look at the first verse. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And so there's an issue. People, professing believers, are eating food offered to idols. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's Temple, And so there are two closely related issues in the church at Corinth. Firstly, some are eating this food that has been sacrificed to idols, food available in the marketplace. You venture down into the city square, you're looking for your Sunday afternoon meal, and there is this food, it has been offered to idols, can I eat it or can't I eat it? Closely related to this, some are actually venturing up to the temples on the mountaintops, and they're sitting down at the banquet feasts in these temples, and they are participating in these pagan feasts. These are the two closely related issues that the church at Corinth has raised for Paul. They're expecting a response. It's a rather lengthy response. Three chapters. What does he do? I've summarized it there for you in five statements. Statement number one. The first thing he does in chapter eight is he indicates to them that there's actually a deeper issue in the church. So he says, hang on a second. I'll get to these things in just a moment. But come on, let's face the facts. There's something else going on here. You have presented a surface issue. You want to know whether or not you can buy that meat in the marketplace. And you want to know what I think about those going up to these pagan temples and participating in these feasts. I'll get there. I'll get there. But understand this. There's something much, much deeper. Knowledge. Your so-called knowledge, whereby you are weighing yourself against others and you are seeking means or avenues or ways in which to set yourself apart. One is doing this, one is practicing this, one is claiming this, and you're doing it in order to seek status. You are practicing one-upmanship. And so in the eighth chapter, he reveals, yeah, hang on a second, I'll get to those issues but something of far greater importance lies beneath the surface. The second thing he does, chapter 9, is he proves to them 
that the only marker of our identity, you see, they're, they're running to all these different markers. And he says, the only marker of our identity in Christ is a love that desires to build up. A rather lengthy chapter, the ninth, and basically what he does is he says, look at me. I'm going to appeal to my own example. And I'm going to show you how I have served. I served among you selflessly. And I did so in order to make the glories of Christ known. In order to proclaim the gospel. I did so in order to build you up. And this is the kind of selfless love I'm talking about. This is what you should be pursuing. Not these, all these other things that are causing all these rifts and factions among you. No. If you want to know what it really means to be a Christian. If you want to know what it really means to be spiritual, if you really want to be assured of your identity in Christ, try building one another up. That's his argument. And he appeals to his own example as proof. And then we come into the 10th chapter, third statement. He now says, look, you must deal with that deeper issue. And that's his point in the first 12 verses. And he appeals to the Israelites of old to prove it. He said, look, they had markers. They thought they stood. They'd been led out of the land of Egypt. They were under the cloud. They came across the Red Sea. They ate spiritual food and drank spiritual, spiritual drink. I mean, that's amazing. And they thought they stood in God's sight, but all the while they actually desired evil. And every single one of them fell in the wilderness. Now take heed. You think you stand, lest you fall. Deal with the deeper issue. And now still in the 10th chapter, verses 13 through 22, he goes all the way back to where this section began, chapter 8. And he basically says, look, now I'm ready to speak to the issues you've raised. All right. I, I've pointed out that there's a deeper issue in play. I've pointed out what true, what true identity in Christ looks like. It is a love that desires to build up. I've now exhorted you and commanded you to deal with the deeper issue. Okay, now these closely related issues that you've raised, eating food, sacrifice to idols, and participating in the pagan feasts, I'm now ready to address these. And he begins in chapter 10, verses 13 through 22, by speaking to this issue of actually physically participating in a feast at a pagan temple, and his exhortation is what? No, 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 no. You must flee from idolatry. And then starting in verse 23 of chapter 10, right through to chapter 11, verse 1, he's going to speak to this issue of eating food that was at one point sacrificed to an idol, but is now just being sold there at Brookshire's, right? In the marketplace. It's just there. And I need to buy something to eat. Well, can I or can't I? And he's going to speak to that issue in the rest of chapter 10. And basically his argument is this. They must seek to please others and glorify God in all things, even those things which are indifferent or morally neutral. Have you got the context? We're jumping in now, chapter 10, 13 through 22. And we're wrestling now with this commandment. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved Flee from idolatry. Paul immediately appeals to their sensibility. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. They're sensible. 
You're thinking individuals. You're reasonable and rational. Therefore, judge for yourselves what I say. And here is what I have to say. Let me begin with an illustration. I'm going to make an illustration to make a point. And it'll become evident where I'm going with this in just a moment. But the illustration is in verse, verses 16, 17, and 18. He begins with the Lord's Supper, verse 16, by way of illustration. He's going to come back to the Lord's Supper later. But now he's just using it by way of an example. The cup of blessing, so the cup of the Lord's Supper that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. You're supposed to answer what? Of course. We all know that. The bread that we break at the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Yes, we all know that. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now he changes the illustration a little bit in verse 18, but he's still trying to make the same point. Consider the people of Israel, the people of old, are not those who eat the sacrifices. Remember all those sacrifices in the Old Testament? Are they not participants in the altar? So what's the point he's trying to make by appealing to the Lord's Supper and appealing to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's simply this. When you participate in an act of worship, you become what? A participant of that very thing. He is not saying, look, when we bless the cup and we bless the bread, we're actually eating Christ's body and drinking Christ's blood. That makes no sense because of the language he sticks with in verse 18. The people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. He's not saying they eat, literally eat the altar, nor is he saying we literally eat Christ's body or drink Christ's blood. His point is this, that when we participate in this act of worship, we become participants in Christ's blood, in Christ's body, meaning what? We become participants in what he accomplished at Calvary's cross through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. We become the beneficiaries of all those blessings that he has purchased for us through his accomplished work at Calvary's cross. And by participating in the cup of blessing, this bread of blessing, not only then are we beneficiaries of these blessings, but we are pledging our allegiance to Christ. The Israelites of old, they were doing the same thing. They brought their bullock or they brought their goat. They put their hand upon its head. They confessed their sin. They slaughtered the thing. The blood was spilt. It was offered up upon that altar. And that blood that was shed made atonement for their sin. By offering it through faith, they participated in the blessings associated with that offering. And so Paul is saying, this is my illustration. We get this. We get it. When we participate in an act of worship, we are claiming the blessings of the one we worship and we are pledging our allegiance to the one we worship. That's my illustration, he says. Now, you're sensible people. Stick with me. 
we move from the illustration to the implication. Verse 19, opening statement, what do I imply then? Where am I going with this? Here's where I'm not going. That food offered to idols is anything? No, it's not anything. Or that an idol is anything. And so am I saying that there's something magical about this food that has been offered to an idol? Or the idol itself, there it is in all its hideousness, that there is something inherently powerful about this inanimate object? Am I suggesting that by eating this food and by touching this idol, that in some spooky way, I don't know, something is being transferred to you that is very negative and is somehow is going to possess you and influence you and have a detrimental effect on your life? No, they're inanimate objects. That's not my point. Here's the implication. Verse 20. <coughs> I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. Whether they're conscious of it or not, they offer it to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are participating in Christ's body and Christ's blood, that is, you are participating in the blessings associated with his work and you are pledging allegiance to him. When you wander up to that pagan temple and there you sit yourself down and you partake of that pagan feast and you eat that food that has been offered to an idol. The idol, it's an inanimate object. Don't get bogged down there. The food, who cares? Point is this. You are participating in an act of worship. And by participating in that act of worship, you therefore become participants with these demons. They're pledging their allegiance, consciously or not. They are pledging their allegiance to these demons. They are entangling themselves in something evil. And Paul's point is this. This is an impossibility, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord. You can't do it. They're antithetical. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't claim to be a participant in Christ and at the same time do something that is demonic. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot pledge allegiance to both at the same time, you're reasonable, sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. There's the illustration. There is the most obvious implication. And now here is the conclusion. Hear me, get it, and get it good. Verse 22. Shall you provoke the Lord to jealousy? What are you trying to do? I think, I think there might be sarcasm here. Going all the way back to verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. In actual fact, you're demonstrating you're not very sensible. Are you trying to provoke the Almighty? Are we stronger than He? Are you trying to provoke a jealous God? In the language of Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. 
And so they have raised this issue again all the way back in chapter 8. Can we do this? And Paul's response, he has kind of meandered here, there, and everywhere because he recognizes there's actually a deeper issue. He speaks to it, and now he doubles back. Takes him a long time, but he doubles back, and he speaks directly to it. No, of course you can't do that. Why would you even want to do that? Why would you want to provoke God and stir his anger toward you? By pledging your allegiance to the Lord and to demons at the same time. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, as Grace Community Church, here is what I want us to get and to be very clear on from this passage of Scripture. This danger is as real today as it was then. We are not immune to this danger. Let me state it, and I want to state it emphatically. Believers at Grace Community Church, our greatest danger isn't that we will stop worshiping God. That is not the greatest danger that faces you, and it is not the greatest danger that faces me, that we will stop worshiping God. The greatest danger that faces us is this, that we will try to combine the worship of God with the worship of idols. And Paul's command to us today is his command to them then, flee. Run for your life. This isn't something you're to fight. This is something you're to turn around and run as fast as you can. Flee from idolatry. One of the old commentators wrote the following. A careful reading of the Bible shows that idolatry is nothing like the crude, simplistic picture that springs to mind of an idolatrous sculpture in some distant country. As the main category to describe unbelief, the idea behind idolatry is very sophisticated. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. Because idolatry is found on center stage. Center stage. And Paul's command echoes through the corridors of time over the intervening centuries. And we hear it and we must heed it today. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I want to answer five questions then to help us unpack the present relevance for this command, flee from idolatry. The first question is this that I want to try to answer. What is it? What exactly are we talking about? And so listen closely. When we speak of idolatry, we are not principally speaking about our actions. Be very clear on that. We're not principally primarily referring to our actions. 
When we speak of idolatry, we have entered the realm of desires. The realm of desires. It occurs, idolatry occurs when we elevate something other than God in our hearts. We'll define the something later. Right now, I just want us to be very clear on the nature of idolatry. It is when we elevate something, we desire something in our hearts more than God. And as a result, this something, whatever it is, doesn't matter right now, but this thing begins to motivate us. And dare I say, it begins to master us. That's idolatry. Okay, clear enough? Second question I want us to be clear on is this. And why am I belaboring? Let me just pause here. Why am I belaboring this? Why am I going through this so systematically? It's because, again, let me reiterate, unless you missed it. I believe, I firmly believe, us as Christians at Grace Community Church, this is one of our greatest dangers. This is one of the greatest dangers we face. We're not denying God, but we are seeking to worship him and idols at the same time. Paul's point is what? You can't go there. It is impossible. And if you live a life like that, please understand me. All you are doing is actually provoking the Almighty. All right? You must choose this day whom you shall serve. Right? That's the point. I want to add to that, that we here right now, you and me at Grace Community Church, if we find ourselves stuck in the mire and the mud, if we find ourselves perpetually spinning our wheels, if we find ourselves in the same condition today we were in six years ago, I'm going to hazard a guess. Actually, it's not a guess. I'm going to tell you this is why. And you can either deal with it or you can go on denying it. You can either get serious about it or continue to push it away in the closet or suppress it or make other excuses or do whatever you want to do. But the point is this, if we want to grow, if we want to move forward, if we're tired of battling the same old battles, if we're tired of that just sort of perpetual malaise or whatever predicament we find ourselves in, then please listen to me. It is time to flee from idolatry. So we're clear on what it is. What causes it? It's very simple. As fallen creatures, the object of our love, we love many things, but lurking behind them all, the chief object of our love is self. We are lovers of self. Because we are lovers of self, we pursue objects for ourselves. The objects in and of themselves might not be problematic. The objects, the things in and of themselves might actually be very good. But because we are motivated by self-love, our love for these things is inordinate. Or as the Bible calls it, our love for these things becomes what? Covetousness. And according to Colossians chapter 3, covetousness is what? idolatry. That's what it is. It is craving something inordinately, something that might actually be very good. But this thing we have elevated in our hearts to a place that it should not occupy, a place where it does not belong, whereby it has usurped 
God, it is now what motivates us and captures our desires. It is what now motivates and masters us, and we are therefore idol worshipers. Third question is this. Why is it so serious? Verse 22 tells us, doesn't it? Or Colossians 3, Paul writing there as well. Colossians 3, 5, and 6, he tells us why it's so serious. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's as black and white as I can get. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's why it is so serious. To a lesser degree, idolatry is so serious because it is at the root of most of what ails us. For example, it is at the root of most relational problems. Spouses, siblings, friends, neighbors, classmates, colleagues, James says you covet, you commit idolatry and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so it is idolatry that is at the root of most of our relational breakdowns. A marriage is in disarray. The husband thinks they are quarreling because his wife isn't on top of things in the home. And the wife thinks they're quarreling because her husband is distant and non-communicative or fill in the blank. These might be issues that we need to speak into from God's word, but they're not actually the cause of quarreling. All the while, disordered desires lurk behind the quarrel. A friendship is in disarray. One friend thinks they're quarreling because the other was impatient. One friend thinks they're quarreling because their children had a falling out. And yes, again, these might be issues, issues that need to be addressed, but they're not the cause of quarreling. The cause of quarreling is idolatry, cravings that have gone unsatisfied. Church is in disarray. One faction thinks they're quarreling because some people are too stern. Another faction thinks they're quarreling because some people are doctrinally unsound. And yes, there are issues that must be addressed. There are issues that must be rectified, corrected, spoken to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But these issues are never the cause of quarreling. Quarreling arises from what? Idolatry, covetousness, a craving for something that has gone unsatisfied. And so that is why it is so serious. How do I identify it? Here's the fourth question. How do I identify it in my own heart? We need to employ our conscience. It is the judge that stands between God and us. It weighs our actions, our affections, and our thoughts in light of God's word. And then it either excuses us or condemns us. And so we need to employ our conscience, our, a conscience informed by the word of God. And as we do so, we move beyond mere surface idols, surface issues. And we arrive at the deeper idols, the bales of the heart. 
David Paulison, very helpful. I think it's his book. I've jotted it down here, Seeing with New Eyes. He lists a host of questions. Let me just give you a sampling. Try to write down some of these. Try even now to answer some of these in your mind. What do you worry about the most? You've just identified an idol. What do you worry about the most? What do you lie on your bed at night, tossing and turning, thinking about? What thing or relationship, if lost, would make you question whether to go on living? You've just identified an idol. What do you use to comfort yourself when things get difficult? Chocolate, whatever the case may be, you've just identified an idol. What are your release valves? What do you do to make yourself feel better? What occupies your downtime? That's a good question. What occupies my downtime? What do you daydream about? You're on the road, your mind slips into neutral. Where does it go? What makes you feel the most self-worth? What do you want to be known for? Just one more. What do you want people to know about you when you first meet them? This goes on and on and on and on. And as we answer these questions, I'm convinced that as we answer these questions and we get below the surface and we enter into the realm of motives and desires, we discover that there are four principal bales, four principal bales that rival our devotion to God. Here is the first, a desire for power and success. That's a big one. A desire for power, a longing for power and success. Number two, a longing, a craving for control and certainty, being in control. Number three, a longing for approval and esteem. And number four, a big, a big one, a craving for comfort and ease. These can become idols to such a degree in our lives that they begin to shape our attitudes, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our relationships, because we have elevated our desire for these things to a position that does not belong to any of these things that is ultimately usurping the position of God. And that desire is now what masters us. So the fifth question is this. What is the remedy? How can we break this cycle of idolatry? You may think I've skipped over the verse, and I guess I, I have, but it was intentional. And now it is time to go back to it. The 13th verse, I think this is where the answer begins. What is the remedy? Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God's unquestionable faithfulness. 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so a celebration of God's faithfulness is the starting point. A celebration of God's ownership of his children, his claim upon us, and our recognition and understanding that ultimately does not depend on us, but depends on him. Building on that then, the command in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't walk away from it. Don't stroll away from it. You run as fast as you can. You know what aids us in our running, unlike anything else? Is when we have something to run to. So it isn't just running haphazardly, you know, carelessly from idolatry, but is actually turning and having a point and a clear marker. That's where I'm heading. I'm leaving this and I'm going there. And every day I'm going to engage in this pursuit as I run from idolatry. And Paul has made it clear in this epistle that ultimately our pursuit is what? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is his main thesis in the entire epistle. It goes back to the main problem that plagues the church in Corinth. They have forgotten who they are. They don't know what it means to be a Christian anymore. They've lost sight of their identity in Christ. And because they've lost sight of their identity in Christ, they have become vulnerable and susceptible to all of these sins, all of these idols, which have led to all of these divisions. And Paul's main point in all of these chapters is this. You need to get back on track. You need to run from this idolatry and pursue the Lord Jesus. Oh, you must pursue Christ, the one who offered himself to make atonement for sin. Never lose sight of that. To live daily in the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ became a curse for me. I need to get after it. And I pursue Christ by remembering that God offers Christ to me, a sinner for my full and complete salvation. Wonder of wonders. I don't fulfill any conditions or obligations to receive this gift. I simply embrace it and welcome it and receive it through faith. The cup of blessing, the food, that in which we participate, is it not a participating in Christ? That as we receive the cup, as we receive the bread, it is all figuring what? Just this reception of the Lord Jesus through faith. And by receiving him through faith, I get everything. Oh, when we receive the Lord Jesus, we are implanted into him. And we take possession of all his blessings. Oh, adoption, what it means to be a son of God justification, what it means to be righteous in his sight, reconciliation, to be at peace with the Almighty. And being implanted into Christ, I now live out my identity in Christ. He occupies the center. He is all that matters. He shapes everything in my life. 
And as he does, all of the idols of power and control and ease and comfort and esteem and notoriety begin to lie prostrate at his feet. I pursue Christ like a madman is what I do as I flee from idolatry. And all the while I celebrate verse 13, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Well, I can't. It's not what Paul says. Stop making excuses. Not what Paul says. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Get up off your seat. Get busy with it. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And the way of escape is Christ himself, our heavenly father. Renew our appreciation for your son, the Lord Jesus, this day. Kindle afresh our love for him. And may he be highly exalted and esteemed in our hearts to such a degree that all other things in life pale in comparison. We are so fickle. We are prone to wander. We are daily combating with sin. And the pull of idolatry is ever present in our hearts. And so we look to your faithfulness. We look to your great provision. And we pray that by your spirit, you might compel us to these things. And we ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.